Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host and resident beggar, Brad. I'm happy to announce I found bread, the bread of life, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. I want to share this bread with other hungry souls that they may establish a firm foundation for their lives. This episode, Rock of Ages. Shout out to Def Leppard for the title to this episode. Longtime rockers Def Leppard from Sheffield, England. Now, they've been around since 1976, and they've had the same lineup since 1992. That's pretty solid structure right there. They did go through a few guitarists in the 80s. Eventually, they landed Vivian Campbell of Dio and Whitesnake fame. Not a bad catch at all. He and Phil Collin have been the axemen for Def Leppard ever since. The band holds an interesting world record. They performed on three different continents all on the same day. They jammed three 45-minute shows, one in Tangiers, Morocco, one in London, England, and one in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. That had to feel like a pretty long day, I'm just saying. Now, the song Rock of Ages is off their Pyromania album, and it had that interesting opening to it, right? Gunter Kleepen Glauten Globen. Many fans assumed, because it sounded like, because it was said with sort of a German accent, so most fans assumed that it was counting off one, two, three, four, thinking, again, that that was how you say one, two, three, four in German. And uh, it's not, just for clarification, that's not how you say one, two, three, four in German. It turns out they aren't real words from any specific language. Pyromania album producer Mutt Lang got tired of doing the four count. One, two, three, four. So he blurted the gibberish out before Rock of Ages, just kind of to be funny. They all thought it was funny themselves, and so... They said, yeah, let's leave that on the album. And the band was actually amazed to hear fans giving that countdown along with them when they performed the song live. Okay, it's not about Mutt Lang or the music. It's about the message, Rock of Ages. We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on this episode, and we're going to read through the chapter in its entirety. I will tell you, after going through the notes on this, I, I thought I actually was considering we'll get through this entire chapter in one episode. I was wrong. Oh, was I ever so wrong. I was confident we could do it. But anyway, I realized uh, after doing some studying and putting the notes together, there's a lot more in this portion of Paul's letter to the believers in Corinth than I first estimated. So we will read through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and unpack what we can in the time we have allotted. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they all ate the same food from the Spirit, 
and they all drank the same drink from the Spirit, for they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God was not pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now these things took place as a prefigurative historical as prefigurative historical events warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did don't be idolaters as, as some of them were as the tanakh puts it the people sat down to eat and drink then got up to indulge in revelry and let us not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. And let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us, who are living in the Akarit Hayamim, last days. Akarit Hayamim, living in the last days. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience, and God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. Therefore, my dear friends, run from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing over which we make the bracha. Isn't it a sharing in the bloody sacrificial death of the Messiah? The bread we break, isn't it a sharing in the body of the Messiah? Because there is one loaf of bread, we who are many constitute one body, since we all partake of the loaf of the one loaf of bread. Look at physical Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So what am I saying? That food sacrificed to idols has any significance in itself? Or that an idol has significance in itself? No. What I'm saying is that the things which pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice not to God, but to demons. And I don't want you to become sharers of the demons. You can't drink both a cup of the Lord and a cup of demons. You can't, you can't partake in both a meal of the Lord and a meal of demons. Or are we trying to make the Lord jealous? We aren't stronger than he is, are we? Everything is permitted, you say. Maybe, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permitted? Maybe, but not everything is edifying. No one should be looking out for his own interests, but for those of his fellows. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord. 
If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising a question of conscience. But if someone says to you, this meat was offered as a sacrifice, then don't eat it out of consideration for the person who pointed it out and also for conscience's sake. However, I don't mean your conscience, but that that of the other person. You say, why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? If I participate with thankfulness, why am I criticized over something for which I myself bless for which I myself bless God? Well, whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking or anything else, do it all so as to bring glory to God. Do not be an obstacle to anyone, not to Jews, not to Gentiles, and not to God's messianic community. Just as I try to please everyone in everything and everything I do, not looking out for my own interests, but for those of the many, so that they may be saved. Okay, long passage there, 33 verses. That's the full chapter, and as I said, we're going to get through not quite half of it on this episode. So the Apostle Paul, or Shaul, if you prefer, begins this portion of the letter with a reminder to the believers in Corinth, which again, these are God-fearing Gentiles mostly, but there's also a smattering of Jewish believers in Yeshua among them as well. So he reminds them of the significance of what happened when their fathers left Egypt. There was a mixed multitude of Hebrew people and those of the nations, Gentiles, who were redeemed. They came out of Egypt. They were redeemed, rescued, saved from Egypt. Let's look again. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. That's Moses. Also, they all ate the same food from the Spirit, and they all drank the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God was not pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Paul is really challenging these believers with strong language. Those who came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus were saved. They were saved from Egypt. So here they come out. They are saved. Then they are immersed. They're baptized. Yet, with the majority of them, Hashem was not pleased, and they did not enter the promised land, their bodies strewn about the desert. And to say a majority, that really feels like it's, it's quite an understatement. If we recall, everyone over the age of 20 years old who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, did not enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. Joshua, whose name in Hebrew is Yehoshua, 
which in Aramaic, which was the language of the first century, is Yeshua. That would be the Aramaic pronunciation of Joshua. Yeshua. Coincidence? I think not. But Paul is calling these followers of Yeshua out. They seem to have gotten prideful, overconfident, as we read earlier on in this letter. And Paul lets them know they are no better than their fathers, those who came out of Egypt. And the risk of rejection exists. They found themselves feeling over-secure. The fathers who came out of who came out of Egypt, they did. And that's exactly what's going on with these folks in Corinth. They're feeling, they're feeling safe and secure in everything. So Psalms uh, 78 and 106 each reinforce the fact that the fathers who were saved from Egypt had distinct advantages having witnessed the strong hand of the Most High, El Elyon, and yet with these advantages that they had witnessing these things, seeing, seeing all the miracles and mighty works of his hands, yet they wavered in their faith. They put Hashem to the test. They grumbled in spite of all that they had experienced, and they found themselves outside the land of promise. They did not obtain it. Paul is telling this congregation that this is an object lesson for those who have come after them. And even for us in present day, we should heed this lesson. The eternal one is Adonai and he changes not. He's not a respecter of persons. If those who had the advantage back then and became overconfident in their security, certainly we will be in the land of promise. You need to think again, Playa. The vast majority of them, save Joshua and Caleb, didn't enter. And those that were younger than 20 when they came out of Egypt. And, and in that number of those who died in the wilderness, who did not enter the land, that includes Moses, Moshe, the prophet, and Aaron, the high priest. They did not enter. Now, does this mean that all those people who have, uh, uh, won't have a portion in the coming kingdom? Now, we, we discussed that actually in a previous episode, and I can't recall the title of that one at this moment. Um, it was focused in the book of Hebrews. We discussed that, and my understanding is that, no, that is not the case, like, as a painting them all with one brush. My understanding is that there are at least some from that time that will gain a portion in the coming kingdom, if not all. But, again, I, my understanding is that, at, at the least, some. I mean, at, at minimum, Moses and Aaron but I believe others as well. And so he's, he's calling their attention to this, what happened in, uh, in the, the Sinai desert. And he's letting them know, you're not in any better position. And actually, 
bit a, a little bit worse off as far as if you're going to get this overconfidence and false sense of security and arrogance because we have advantages too. They had advantages then and we have advantages now. We've got the written scripture from Genesis through Revelation. We've got it. The evidence of the arrival of Messiah. He has been identified. We've got all of this. We've got all these lessons that have, that we should be learning from. And we like to play games with it. To see how close we can get to the edge. Or to see how little. What's the, what's the least amount I've got to put in. In order, you know, in order, in order to get in. To get a portion in the coming kingdom. That's not the attitude we should have. Anyway, regarding those in the in, in that fell in the wilderness, as far as their portion in the coming kingdom, one thing is for certain, we'll know more later. So, Paul is putting these believers on alert right now. Like, you guys need to heed the warnings that are in the scripture. You're missing, you're missing the point. And he uses, uh, he goes on from that, and in the midst of it, he uses the imagery of immersion, baptism. He wrote, in connection with the cloud and the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. Those who were rescued from Egypt, saved, were under the protection of the cloud by day, which was a pillar of fire, by night. So they were under that cloud, and they all walked through the Red Sea as on dry ground. Paul says they immersed or baptized themselves into Moses when they did this, when they went through this, being under the protection of that cloud and walking through the water, the waters of the Red Sea that they immersed themselves, they baptized themselves into Moses. Now, this is the same way Paul describes the baptism of those who follow the Master Yeshua. In Romans, he writes that we are immersed into Messiah. So being immersed into Moses means that they were to surrender to his understanding of Hashem and the Torah, which was delivered directly to him, that that they would be united with Moses in his vision and goals and submitted to his leadership. The same is true for those of us who are baptized and immersed into Yeshua the Messiah. We surrender to his understanding of the Torah, to his, yes, and to his, his understanding of Hashem. We are united in his vision and goals, and we are submitted to his leadership, Yeshua. And we've done a couple of episodes, uh, one on baptism called To the River, and then uh, the Teacher Teacher episode, which talks about what it means to have a rabbi, to be immersed into and follow a rabbi, Yeshua being our rabbi. And so, as far as Surrendering to his under Yeshua's understanding of the Torah, being united in his vision and goals and submitted to his leadership. How are we doing with that? 
How are you personally doing with that? Don't look at the church. Don't look to the left or to the right. We have to look in the mirror how, and ask ourselves, how am I doing with that? Being a disciple, a follower of the Master Yeshua, the Messiah. When something's immersed into a liquid, it ends up taking on the qualities, some of the qualities of that liquid. If you immerse a piece of cloth into dye, the cloth takes on some of the qualities of the dye. We are immersed into Yeshua. We should take on his qualities, living as he lived, walking as he walked. Paul says that the fathers ate the same food from the spirit and drank the same drink from the spirit. So he's talking about the manna and the water that came from the rock in the wilderness. And I believe there is a connection to what Paul is saying here with the communion meal, the Eucharist, because he's going to write some about that in this and the following chapter. But before we get to that, and we'll be, uh, we'll be picking up more on that in the next episode, Lord willing, the wording Paul uses here, food from the Spirit and drink from the Spirit. So he uses the Greek word pneumatikos, pneumatikos, which means spirit sent. Now, Paul's the only, as I understand it, the only New Testament writer to use this word, pneumatikos. And he apparently uses it 15 times in his writings. Spirit sent, pneumatikos. This is just an observation, but the word pneumatikos leads to the English word pneumatic. And what pneumatic is, something that uh, uses pneumatic power or pneumatic pressure, it's the use of air pressure, air pressure, pneumatic. So when he says spirit sent, air pressure, the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, is literally translated as the breath or wind of the Holy One. Air pressure. The breath or wind of the Holy One. Blessed be He. So there's this air pressure, the manna and the water, our spirit sent, pneumaticos. It's possible that, as some translations say, uh, he's, he, uh, the bread and the water are spiritual food. Manna and water as spiritual food. So do manna and water nourish spiritually? We know they, will, they nourish physically. Well, I, I think it could very well be Spiritual food also, as you would have to walk in faith in Hashem for your daily provision of each. You're relying on on him for the manna, your daily bread, and you're relying on him to provide water. And even as he did, water from a rock. In the first several verses of this chapter, Paul makes this interesting statement, speaking of the rock, For they drank from a spirit-sent rock, which followed them, and that rock was the Messiah. And so there's that word pneumaticos again. The rock 
from which the water flowed, and you can reference Exodus chapter 17 as well as Numbers 20, that rock was pneumaticos, spirit sent. Paul says the rock followed the people and that the rock was the Messiah. So did the rock actually follow people through the wilderness? Was the rock literally the Messiah? So there's a midrash um, called Agadah that says that the children of Israel were accompanied by a rolling stone. And no, not those guys. Yes, they are old, but they're, they're honestly not that old. They might look it, but they're not that old. But so there was this rolling stone that accompanied, went alongside them as they traveled and journeyed through the wilderness. So that stone followed along the journey to provide water. And I think Paul would have been familiar with that specific Midrash, and he was probably riffing off of it. As for the rock being Messiah, there are many passages of Scripture that refer to Hashem as a rock or as the rock. And so I believe Paul is using metaphoric language here referring to the rock and the in the two places where water was produced out of rocks. Again, that's in uh, Mirabah and then um, just uh, close to Mount Sinai, I believe is where uh, Numbers chapter 20 talks about. So I think he's using metaphoric language here. Yeshua is the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. Manna. And those who drink the water Yeshua provides will never again thirst. So was Yeshua literally an inanimate rock or boulder rolling and following the people through the wilderness prior to his incarnation on earth? I don't think so. I really don't think that that's how it worked. Even Peter uses the languages of us being living stones built into a spiritual house. I don't believe that means that we are breathing chunks of granite. I believe the language is poetic and metaphoric. You may believe otherwise, and if so, good on you. So Paul clarifies a little bit here, and I'm going to use some of my interpolation as we pick up in verse 6. Now, these things took place as a prefigurative historical events. Sorry, as pre prefigurative historical events. So, these are examples. They're types for us to learn from. These prefigurative historical events to which Paul is referring, what happened in the wilderness. And so... Picking back up in verse 6, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Those back in the wilderness, back who were set free from Egypt. Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did 
with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. And I believe you can read more about that in Numbers chapter 20. And let us not put the Messiah to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. So putting Hashem or Messiah to the test literally means to put on trial. And we did an episode actually called The Trial, and you can check that one out when you have time, that was talking specifically about this testing when we test God or put God on trial. And when we put Messiah to the test, we are challenging him the way the adversary did. We're putting him on trial. If you really are the Messiah, dot, 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 and fill in the blank, putting him to the test. We put, and we put the Messiah on trial to prove who he said, who, that he is, who he says he is. Don't do that, folks. We're not supposed to do that. And they clearly, that's what they were doing back in the, in the wilderness. They put Messiah to the test even back then. The promised, the coming Messiah. So as to say, well, if, the, if we really are going to have a Redeemer, why doesn't he do something now? Those kinds of things. That attitude. All right, so Paul continues in verse 10. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Akarit Hayamim, last days. Paul is saying, if we ignore history, we are bound to repeat it and look at the consequences. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is something Forgive me. Let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. And God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. Verse 13 is often misquoted to say, God won't give you more than you can handle. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He says, no temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. He's telling the believers in Corinth, don't act like the temptation that you face is any greater than that of anyone else. Everyone faces temptation. And so it sounds to me like they were trying to use, make excuses for why they were sinning so much. Well, yeah, but the temptation is so strong here. And we're surrounded by the people who are still engaging in the behaviors that we're supposed to not be engaging in. And it's not easy. They're all around us. God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able or beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, Along with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. Whatever temptation you face, God has provided the way out. There is an escape if you are willing to take it. 
and not yield to the temptation. He provides the way out. And as for God not giving us more than we can handle, I say this is a great misunderstanding. I think it's wishful thinking, to be honest with you, that people, that people say this. Because I believe that we will absolutely experience situations, trials, tribulations, which are greater than we can handle on our own. And this will happen in our lives so that we will reach out to the Holy One in faith, blessed be He. If I face nothing, I, if I face only things that I can handle, why would I need God? Or my brothers or sisters. No, no, it's not more than I can handle. I can handle all of this all on my own. Why would I need God in my life? Or again, my brothers and sisters in the faith to call on, to ask for prayer, to reach out to, for counsel, for advice, for support and encouragement. We do have things in our lives that are beyond what we can handle in and of ourselves. And that's why he is there. He's there ready for us to reach out to him. We will experience things beyond our ability to handle them. What will we do when we do? Will we just dig our heels in, dig deeper, try harder? Will we kick against the pricks? Will we fold up the tents and quit? Or will we reach out in faith to El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one? And will we reach out? to those in our faith family for their support as well. What would Hashem have us do? Study to show yourself approved of God. Yeah, I really don't know what I was thinking that, I, that I'd get through this entire chapter in one episode. So once again, Lord willing, we will continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 next time. And if you haven't been going through this study with us from the beginning, we started at the Nobody's Fool episode, which gives some history and context behind this whole letter, which uh, Paul's first epistle to the assembly in Corinth. And I encourage you to go through those as you have time and, and study along with us here. As for now, there is a world that is lost and dying and in need of spiritual drink and food. They need the bread of life, Yeshua the Messiah, and they need to drink of the water he has so they will never again thirst. So let's go out and give them heaven. And until next time, may the favor of the Master Yeshua the Messiah found in the eyes of Hashem be upon you and your entire household and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding reign in your hearts and minds in the Messiah Yeshua. Grace and peace. Cain Shalom.